We will be back in uh, the uh, gospel. We're in the gospel of Mark this week. We're in chapter 3, that's where we'll kind of be if you want to go ahead and turn there. We begin this morning there, finally making some progress, chapter 3. I mean, that's amazing. I think we spent the last two and a half months in chapter 1 and 2. So, at this rate, we could finish it. Not this year, that's not going to happen. But possibly sometime next year we will get through this. So, I, I think it's a good uh, passage of scripture uh, as a... Uh, you know, this weekend uh, in my life, we uh, we dropped off our oldest daughter yesterday. It was pretty heartfelt. Uh, and I think the hardest thing, everybody keep asking me, like, is it, you know, how are you taking it? And I'm like, you know, I feel like I prepared her for the moment, for sure. Uh, I think she's a leader amongst leaders. And, uh, you know, I feel like the intentional work that we did towards her being a leader is all there. I think the hardest thing has been just the change of season, the uh, the fact that the first 18 years of her life, that is done now, of her staying at my house. Not that she won't come back and live probably one day again, I'm sure. I'm sure we all ex- experience that. But uh, just that that season, that part of it is over. I've I've, uh, I've lived a majority of that season in front of many of you. Uh, uh, with her, and and now I've got to live this next season with her as an adult, and treat her differently, and learn to treat her differently, and talk to her differently, and and while she's my child in one aspect, I have to talk to her like she's her own person, and uh, it's somewhat of a paradox there, so there will be many areas of our relationship that are unchanged and, and indifferent, but there will also be many that will evolve into something new and unknown. Uh, <clears throat> there will be some things remain the same. But from my experience, I know that the relationship with my own parents evolved into something more than just a sonship. It actually has turned into a friendship. I like hanging out with my dad. I mean, my dad's an awesome guy. I mean, he's just a good friend and love hunting with him. I love traveling with him. He's, good. he's just easy going. <clears throat> Great guy to hang out with. When you're a kid, you don't think about that stuff. When you're a kid, it's like, ah. You know, you're like, I can't, you know, I've been around him forever. Now I just kind of want to live outside of that, you know. But as I get older, it's like I just, I think my parents are are pretty cool on that side of things. And our friendship, it's evolved into more of a friendship. So it's uh, it's strange being on this side of the coin, but <clears throat> I trust God with my daughter. And uh, I think college is a good proving ground. You know, it'll, she, this is the point, man, where you see if, uh, okay, let's see if you, uh, you know, you, you've learned if you learn, because, oh, you might get the books part, but the life part's where you got to learn and pay attention to. So our scripture this morning is an interesting concept that happens in the Bible quite frequently. And truthfully, uh, um, we don't know how to handle uh, this, this, that, this thing that happens uh, when we find this thing in the Bible. Um, what I'm talking about this morning is a paradox. Uh, a paradox, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So it's, it, it sounds crazy or it sounds absurd. It sounds like they work against each other, but somehow it's all working for good. Uh, 
And so uh, the funny thing about that is I think that kind of talk, when we talk about paradoxes, it kind of gives us mixed feelings. Uh, paradoxes often present two sides. They seem so different, so opposite, and yet both are true, and both are actually working towards the same goal. So this is what we're going to begin about this morning in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Say amen if you're there. Mm, good group this morning. Reads like this, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come, stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life? Or to destroy it. But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the, men, so the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. Adamia, and from the east of the Jordan River, and even from as far as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever the possessed, those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the, spirit would, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the Son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. That's a lot happening there. There's a lot happening right there. So let's break this down, and then we're going to talk a bit. So once more, Jesus has approached the Sabbath. And we talked about this just a few weeks ago. Out of his own mouth, he said the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not to meet the requirements of and people. And not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Now, that doesn't mean they listened to him. That's just what he said, right? And don't, you can't get judgmental here either. Always be careful. There are just too many times in our life that Jesus has told us to either do something or not to do something. And we've rebelled against the things he's taught us to. I've said it before and I'll say it again. At some point in our walk, we all become a little bit of a Pharisee. And if you haven't experienced it yet, it's probably because you're a baby Christian. At some point... You will start judging others by the way you live your life. Well, why can't they do this and why can't they do that? And we forget that it's through the strength of Jesus that we can do anything, right? So our, our hope and our only hope is when we become like this is that Jesus will reveal it to us and allow us to repent. So we can't really be judgmental when we see moments like this. But in this moment, the Pharisees are hoping that he does anything wrong so they can point fingers basically to him. They want to accuse him of something. And if there's one thing we've got to come to realize about Jesus, and it, he is always aware of the heart condition of everyone in the room. Nobody said anything. They said they were plotting to do it. They were thinking about, they were thinking of how are we going to do this. Nobody said anything, and yet he made it a spectacle for all to see. Why? Because he knew the hearts of those in the room. He hears what you don't say. Let me say that again. He hears what you don't say. 
In this case, their hearts were stuck on the law and looking for an opportunity to discredit Jesus. Jesus, being fully aware, turns this into a teaching opportunity. He begins asking questions. By the way, this is the best way to teach. When we ask questions, our brains start to get dusted off and begin to start putting some thought to the things we're hearing. You ever notice that when anybody wants to engage you or talk to you, they start asking you questions. Now your brain has to function. You're like, oh, well, let me think about that for a second. Uh-huh. Your brain starts moving. When questions begin to be asked, this is a wonderful way to be teaching. Wonderful. So I've always thought that this uh, must seem odd to everyone around. I mean, they have to have thought, why is this guy acting like someone accused him of something? Like he just making this whole, like all of a sudden it's a spectacle. Where is that coming from? I mean, like it's got to be weird. One of my... Probably one of my favorite things that I hear today is when this happens. Well, if you're doing, uh, if what you're doing is so right, then why do you feel the need to justify your actions? I mean, come on. If I, if anybody else would have done, I'm like, why? If it's so right, why'd you have to justify it? Don't act like anybody said that before. Come on. It's simple, so that you may know the truth, and the truth can set you free. Amen. So, what do the Pharisees do? Well, they hear him, but they're not listening to him. There's a difference, right? Rather than uh, call out anything in front of the crowd, the plot to kill Jesus just begins. However, in restoring this man's hand in front of a crowd, only created a larger following for Jesus. So much so that the Bible here says vast numbers of people came to see him. Vast numbers. And as they came to see him, he met whatever needs they had. However, there's some interesting things here because it contrasts against the very message he wants to tell. It's a paradox. On one hand, the message that he is the Christ is the central focus point of the entire gospel. And yet here we find Jesus telling the spirits who are proclaiming the truth that he is the Son of God. He wants them to be quiet and not say anything. I thought that's the whole point of them following you. Right? Why? Wouldn't this help his cause? Wouldn't this help his message? Isn't that who he is? Why bring in the crowd, which you would massively proclaim the message you want to, only to shut the message down that you want them to know about? It's a paradox. doesn't make sense. It's like bringing them all in and then all of a sudden deciding, you know what? Well, I'm done. <laughs> as soon as you got in the door. It's a paradox. There are two things that seem to be working against each other, and yet both are working towards the same goal. There's a reason why he's saying it's not time. There's a reason why he's saying don't say that. And this won't be the first time you see this in the Bible either. Right? We know of many times where he said, don't go tell anybody. Don't tell anybody this. Don't tell anybody this. But Jesus, you're healing everybody. We want to tell everybody we know. I know, but don't. That doesn't make sense. I thought you want to be known. I thought you want the gospel to go. I thought you want the, you don't understand. I know, I know we don't understand. Tell us, right? But all of these paradoxes, all of these instances like this are also found in the life of Jesus. See, often in times, you know, Joy and I have come to say, we, you know, we just like say to each other when we find a truth that's hard, maybe it's more possible that sometimes the Bible, we think in this, in this term, either or. That's the terms that we think in. But oftentimes in the Bible, when we read the Bible, it's both in. Well, I don't understand how, but that doesn't mean that's not true. Just because you don't understand something, but yet the Bible presents both cases, doesn't mean it's not. I mean, it just means that you just don't understand it, that it's something hard for you to understand, or maybe there's something spiritual going on that's beyond your comprehension. Even Paul admitted there were things he didn't know. 
which is amazing because it seemed like he knew everything. There are just some things that are hard, right? They seem to work against each other. For instance, one of them, I'm just going to go through a couple. Matthew 10, 16, be as shrewd as a snake and yet harmless as a dove. Some of us, we've been snakes, so we can understand that part, right? We're like, I'm more in trouble with the dove part, God. I have no idea. I know how to eat dove. I can shoot them down pretty good, too, in September. But this whole be gentle as a dove thing, I'm not sure. I, I mean, they seem to get killed a lot, God. Well, that's why you need to be smart like a snake. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's a crazy paradox there. Well, but God, if I'm shrewd like a snake, what if I start acting like one? Well, don't. I need you to act like a dove, but think like a snake. What? You see, that's hard. That's not easy. How is this accomplished? I mean, I'm supposed to think wicked, which honestly shouldn't be that hard seeing, you know, kind of where we come from, what we've been delivered from. But yet somehow I'm to be Christ-like. I'm supposed to be loving, full of grace, turning the other cheek. I don't think snakes turn cheeks. Right? How about Matthew 23, verse 12? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. If I am low, God will bring me up high. And if I am high, God will bring me low. Right? I hear this said all the time, and it's like it's so simple, but it's at odds with itself, isn't it? Humility and exaltation work against each other, and yet somehow if I am humble and I work to humble myself, then Christ will exalt me. The lower I go in reality means the higher I go. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. That's why it's hard for us. We don't naturally incline to humble ourselves. When we seek position or we seek, when we're ambitious and we seek position, we seek authority, we seek position or anything like that, right? We don't think of, well, what I need to do is serve. That's what's going to get me up there. We don't think like that. We think, what can I do? What can I be a part of? How much can I do? We never think like that. The lower I go in reality means the higher I go. It reminds me of flying an airplane. I don't know, have you ever, have you ever like played around on like a video game or anything and you're flying and everything? When you pull the throttle down, the plane goes up. That doesn't make sense to me. If you've ever played a video game, I like switch that every time in the controller. I'm, not, I'm just telling the truth because that doesn't, my brain can't compute that going down means going up. Right? It's foreign. When, we, when you play anything, look at an airplane game. When they throttle down, down means up. And when they throw up, that means down. That doesn't make sense to me at all, right? It's contrary. It's contrary to the way I think. It's contrary to the way I, 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 I believe. I mean, it just it goes against the grain. Or how about 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10? For when I'm weak, I'm strong. Come on. Seriously? How? How does my weakness make me strong? Biblically, the idea is that when my flesh has become exhausted of trying to do it all, trying to muscle everything into place spiritually, and the realization comes upon me that I just can't do it, it's then that I turn to Christ and give in to his will and his way. From him, I gather the strength through the Holy Spirit to do the things that I just can't do. I keep my eyes fixed on him, much like how I desire alcohol, for instance, yet I haven't had a drink in forever. I desire it, right? My flesh desires it, but I focus on Christ. 
in my weakness, if I was to give, I mean, like my, in my heart, I would try to find a way. Listen, I'm going to tell you the battle that goes on in my brain. My brain will say things like this, like, I mean, like, you know, I mean, one drink wouldn't hurt you. It wouldn't kill you. or doing anything like that. And then, you know what else I think about on top of that? I was telling Joy on the way back, I said, you know what scares me about a call? Is like, and as I was thinking about this whole message on our ride back, I was thinking, what scares me is I, I say, yeah, one drink, I can, I, and I can listen to my brain tell me stuff like that, right? The flesh just talked to me, right? And then yet there's this deep-seated fear that comes over me that that one drink would kill everything God has worked so hard to change within me. And then I think, oh, it would all come crumbling down. And, and I feel like, God, we've just come so far together. I just can't. I just can't give in. I just can't. And that's the strength of Christ. That's the spirit of God bearing witness against my flesh, right? That's what's happening there, right? So I, I, in that, I, I find the truth in that paradox, right? I am weak. I can admit that I'm weak because what is my flesh? My flesh is constantly trying to tear at me, trying to eat at me, trying to tell me, oh, it's okay, everything's all right. But Jesus is constantly also in my spirit, rises up against my flesh and say, that's a lie. That's a lie. You don't need this. What you need is Jesus. What you need is God. What you need is to focus. What you need right now is not to believe the lies that are being told to you in your brain right now. You've managed, like, look what, and, and literally it's like the spirit goes over. You've managed to keep your integrity. You've managed to, to walk a transparent life. All these things that you prayed to me, look at how much of that has come true, Jim. Listen to the spirit. And in that moment, I'm like, like knees shaking in fear of a one, like all of a sudden now, alcohol scares me to death. Because I believe now that one sip would just crumble me to the ground. Romans 6, verse 18. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. So I'm going to leave slavery to become slave. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Right? In becoming a slave, we are free. What? In in becoming a slave, we are free. This seems like a, so much of a radical idea, but, but maybe not so much. We were once slaves to sin, whether we understand that or not. Our decision, our choices were all corrupt by our sinful nature and will. We thought we were free, but that only adds to the deception and the wickedness of how, you know, uh, lying that sin is and the deception of it. We've never known freedom until Jesus. Truth, period. We, when we met Jesus it's him that frees us from sin and presents us with the first freedoms of our life. I know there's people say, man, well, we have free will. No, you have free once Jesus frees your will. When Jesus frees your will, there's nowhere in the Bible that the word free will exists, guys. I'm, I, I know people say that all the time. We have free will. We have choices. Oh, yeah, you got a choice, and God's going to present you with one. When you hear the gospel, you have a choice. You can harden your heart or in that moment accept the freedom by which he's handing you at this moment. Freedom of your will, because you know what my will was, or my will is, even at times, I just shared it with you, my will's the flesh going in here, man, just take one drink, it ain't nothing, can't you just do what you want to do, can't you use this freedom now to walk any way you can, I can't, but I choose to be a slave of righteous living, well, I'm going to be a slave to one thing or another, I choose to be a slave of freedom, the freedom of choosing what I want to do, to stay in the choice, to stay, and have the, to have free will, I must stay in Jesus, or my will is free, Free to choose to become the slave of righteous. Free to choose not to do something. Free to choose to do something. I have to stay in Christ. I have to choose to live a righteous life. How about this one? 
Mark 8, verse 36. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? You can gain everything and lose everything at the same time. Paradox. You can actually be successful. You can be wealthy, healthy, and prosperous and go straight to hell. Absolutely. You can win at everything and still lose everything, which should raise the question, at what cost will the American dream have on you eternally? What is the value of temporal things to you? Me and my wife go round and round here. She goes, you, you know, we, we were coming back, I think, and she was talking about wanting a house, you know, and everything. I'm like, I think that's a great thing. Goes, you don't care. You don't care about a house. You don't care. I'm like, I don't. It's stuff. Wherever joy goes, that's my home. Wherever that is, fine with me. It's home. If you want to buy a house, I'm with you. All right, we'll do that. I, do I care about a house? Nope. I don't care about cars. I don't care about stuff. I just don't. I, I, I think that's some, like some people have things that are easy to them. And I look at some people's giftings, and I'm like, man, look how gifted they are in that. I wish I could be gifted like that in that area. And I'm not. And, like, those are some places. But the one place I think God's gifted me in that is that. I, I don't covet physical objects. What I love is relationships. That's what I love. I like friends. I like family. It's what I value. I value, I, I value that. Um, to me, those things are eternal. And so when I set my eye on eternal, as soon as I've set my eye on eternal, I only want things that are going to be forever. The one the greatest thing about the gospel is that everybody I introduce to the gospel that received Jesus Christ as Lord, I get to take that friendship to eternity with me. I'll never get to take no house with me. By gosh, it'll make my wife happier on this earth, but it's not going to make her happier in the next one. She won't get to take it. For all the paint jobs that we'll put on that house and for all the furniture we'll buy for it, it will never go to heaven. But my wife will, and I will. And all our friends will, and our families that we get to tell about Jesus and believe in Jesus will. Right? <clears throat> to gain some of these things might cost you eternal things. And in doing so, a piece of you that might just be irreplaceable. So be careful there. John 12, verse 25. How about this one? <clears throat> Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world We'll keep it for eternity. That's like saying that everybody who loves losing is going to be winners. You know how mad that makes winners? I want to win. But you're going to lose. Because you love winning, I'm going to make you a loser. And because you love losing, I'm making you a winner. It doesn't make sense. That's a paradox. That doesn't make sense. Come on. This one's. it sounds blatant. I mean, but loving my life. More than eternity is to love the world more than I love Christ. If that is the case, then I'm lost forever. Earth becomes my only heaven, for hell awaits me after I die. This is the truth of this, this statement. To those who are in love with Christ, earth has taken on a new call. It has become the highway in hedges. If you had not heard that song, it's an old song. Where we are to gather the rest of the wedding party. That's what it is. Earth is only the place by which God has sent us out now to draw those in for the wedding feast. Amen? We're going to call all in that are going to join us. We're just strangers in this land. Foreigners, really. I love the, some of the Bible say aliens. We're the illegal aliens here. Don't you know that? They didn't ask us here. They don't even like us here. Right? Because we what? We bear witness 
of what? The sin of this world. We bear witness. That's why he said the world will hate you. And if it doesn't, you might be questioning whether you're living in the light. You should have opposition. That's part of it. We're waiting for the day when we're transformed and seated in the throne of glory. Now, these are just a few paradoxes. I mean, I could have gone on and on and on. And here in Mark chapter 3, the ministry of Jesus beckons the crowd to come and hear the truth. And yet Jesus shuts up everyone he meets. Good job there, buddy. Like, I thought we were supposed to be telling everybody about you. But every time we tell them about you, you tell them to shut up. Good job. That has to be frustrating if you're an apostle, by the way. Like, you're watching him do ministry. And that's got to be hard. Like, oh, I guess he wants, he wants everybody. To, we should just gather everybody up because it seems like everybody, he's cool with everybody coming and getting healed. But every time we try to say who he is or anything, he just tells us to shut up. Okay, this is how ministry is going to be done. I mean, literally, this is what they're thinking. This is how we must, this is how it must be, you know? Some say it's reverse psychology. I don't know about that. I don't believe that. Hmm, I'm going to use reverse psychology. I just don't see that. I don't know. Um, I believe it to be humility. Now, listen, I, I believe it to be that he practiced what he preached. Like Matthew 6 records the teaching of Jesus, trust what the Lord, that the Lord sees you. Trust that the Lord sees you, and that is exactly what he did. He wasn't looking for glory here. He wanted the Father to receive all the glory. I think we miss that in Jesus' ministry. In looking at his ministry, and if we were to model our ministries after Jesus, then we, our message about us would become nothing. The gospel is not Jesus' testimony. It is God's, God the Father. This is why he said, I say what I heard the Father say. I did what I saw the Father do. Do you ever notice that? Like he never took credit for anything. He could not, right? Because he said, I'm only repeating. I'm only an image of the Father here to you now. I'm his son bearing the testimony by which I was told to say, doing the things of which I was told to do. That's it. So I cannot receive glory here. Don't give me the glory of that name. That name belongs to the Father. This is his plan, his message. He took no credit for his ministry, his power, his prayer, his courage, his peace, or his strength. He glorified the Father every chance he could. He humbled himself in his ministry every chance he could. He kept any temptation of ego abased by telling others not to say anything about the miracles. Instead, he stood confident in what he was doing and that the Father had asked him to, uh, what the Father had asked him to do. And that was enough. That was enough for Jesus. Like, Jesus didn't care about the crowds. That's why it never bothered him to turn them away. It's not about him. It's not about what he wants. What does the Father want? What's the plan? What's the mission? What am I supposed to be doing? It's not about the crowds. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to heal everybody. That's not what I'm I'm here for one purpose and one purpose only. Now, why I'm here, there are many things I get to do that I saw the Father do. There's many things I get to say that I saw the Father say. But for this, it was enough for Jesus. Jesus trusted that the Lord saw him. And you know why I keep coming back here? A couple of reasons. Number one, the church has lost this aspect of the gospel. This one where it's not about your church being known for, be, uh, for being Jesus-centered, but actually the Father receiving all the glory for the gospel and everything that comes with it. We've got to start pointing people more to the Father instead of to us. Well, if you'll come here, this is where you'll hear about Jesus. No, man, there's a lot of places you can go hear about Jesus. 
This is why I can never just be like, oh, it's all about our church. I just can't ever. I know too many good leaders out here amongst our community that are preaching the gospel. People are getting saved in their churches. That's great. One more to the kingdom. We shout victory when that happens. That's a win for us too. All right? The church, much like in the days of Jesus, chooses which things they want to participate in when it comes to the style and practice of the ministry of Jesus. To follow Jesus in style and command is humbling. And it cuts to the core of our pride, our selfish ambitions, and our ego. And this leads me to the second reason that I keep coming back to this Matthew 6 thing where it all, I personally struggle with this. I moved here in 2009, and while my first five, six years were fun and seemingly successful, I wonder how much of that was my gifting that took the glory in rather than stepping aside and pointing the way to the Father. I've done a lot of cool things for God. I got to do a lot of cool things for God where God, I believe he opened doors and things like that, but God also gifted me very well. And don't make no mistake about it, it's a gift from God to do the things I do, but can I tell you the things that come easy for me? I heard it said like this uh, the other day. It says, man, if you can write a book about the things that that you've done in your ministry, it's not God. Because if it's God, you should say, man, I don't even know how it happened. I, I don't know. I totally wasn't ready. I wasn't good. I couldn't preach for nothing. I, I, it, had, it had to be God, like no other way, right? If you can tell somebody how you did it, it wasn't God. It was you. Doesn't mean you didn't do a good work. I'm just saying it wasn't God. Not maybe a spiritual work, but not necessarily like a, a miracle. Maybe that's the reason we don't say the words like we, we talked about this in here, like say words like amazing, unbelievable, miracle. Like what happened was a miracle. Because we need to really see one, right? I mean, like, we haven't seen one. We've seen gifted men, unbelievably gifted men today do some incredible things. But unbelievable? A miracle work? This is, this is the thing I struggle with, right? I grew up, uh, like, many, like many of you, uh, wanting the affirmation of my parents or anyone else that would pay attention. So it stands to reason, doesn't it, that my heart would want... That in the church as well. And even as a pastor, pastor love, don't, don't make no mistake about it. I don't know anybody who doesn't love affirmation. Everybody loves an attaboy. Everybody loves the old shoulder, you know, padded. You know, we laugh at work, you know, if, if, we, if we really, because you can tell when somebody wants affirmation at work, we always tell them, like, does your back hurt from patting yourself on the back so bad? I mean, you know, we give them a hard time. We say something funny like that because we, you can see it in people when they want affirmation. Right? And what's to say that we don't use our gift to get affirmation? Well, can you see all the works I've done? Can you see these things? Doesn't that bring me credibility before you? Doesn't that bring this? But listen, I can do all those things. But look at, look at how Christ modeled his ministry. Anybody, anytime somebody was going to do anything or say anything that was going to exalt him or could have said anything towards his ego, what did he do? He ran from it. He ran from anything that would have exalted or, or, or put up an ego. And listen, I had the, I had the Lord uh, uh, talking with me over the last couple weeks. I told Joe, I said, I think the Lord's working on me in this area because the, one of the greatest frustrations, I'm way off my notes now, but one of the greatest frustrations I have here, uh, and I keep coming back to the Matthew 6, because guys, I think I'm preaching to me. I mean, I'll just be honest. I think I'm preaching to me. The difficulty of trying to, uh, to want to grow a church, but want to really do it in a right way, but uh, I feel like, God, you've got me in handcuffs. Let me go. Let me use my gifts. You know I will, put, I will put people in the seats. God comes back to me and says this. I thought you wanted revival. I thought you wanted something different. 
but you keep talking to me as if you want something like everybody else. Well, I don't really want something like everybody else got. got what? And then this is where God challenged me. He goes, well, what you want is people to respect you and say your way is the right way. And that's why if people are in the seats, it'll somehow validate your ministry. I'm being terribly transparent today. And that's the truth. So there's this struggle, even in my own heart, as I hear the paradoxes happen. I want these things, but my heart wants affirmation. My heart has an ego. My heart struggles because I think I'm going to be validated in like, as if I need to say that I, that I want to be right more than I want to be godly. My heart, you see what I'm saying? This is this paradox within me, Right? And so there's this fight. So like you, you hear this come up a lot in me because the struggle's within me. Now, I have to believe that the struggle's within me. It's within, it's within some of you as well. Right? And this is the part I have to come. So I'm looking back at Jesus. I see him modeling his ministry. I see him like, like any time there's a possibility or something said that could boast his ego, he steps back from it and immediately says, well, I just only saw what the Father's doing. I, I only did. And he immediately tries to just get away from that. Right? What was one of the things that the devil offered uh, Jesus? How about I put you up there above everybody else? You'll stand up on the temple and everybody will come and worship you. No, oh, man, I'm not doing that. Well, everybody would know who you are then, Jesus, everybody. Not this way. This isn't the way. This isn't the way. And the irony to me is I can't help but see that to me that's the church today a little bit. We've been offered, well, hey, we'll put you on, we'll do this. We'll put you on cable. We'll put you on cable. We'll put you on the radio. We'll put you. On, we'll give you the voice all over the world. Blah blah blah. And all of a sudden, you can't hear anything anymore. It's just everybody's voice. Sounds like white noise now. Now we don't. Now we don't hear anything. It's just noise. It's the paradox. I think God is wanting to do something here, but also think God is trying to find the balance of it all. I think God is trying to help us out with our ego. I think, God, and I mean ego, I mean the church too, guys. You think I'm the only one like this? Nobody, I mean, to me, like I feel like the revolution of my life is that I'm just now seeing it. That's the saddest part that I've done ministry, completely ego inflated ministry. Whether I understood it or not, I reflect back on it and go, there's a lot of things that played to my ego. And I justified it with God because I was praying. I mean, I'm, I'm a praying man. I, I was praying, I was doing these things. But when I look at what I hunger for versus what I, what I want sometimes, those are two different things. I hunger for revival, but sometimes I want things that are shallow because they're easy. And it makes me want to settle. It's a paradox. I've got to fight this in my spirit and in my flesh. This is where I'm weak. God has gifted me, yes, but not to the point to my gift nor the work that I'm capable of, but to the Father alone. He's gifted me to serve him, him alone. He's gifted you to serve him. And him alone. And Jesus thought it was enough. That everything that he was given, everything that was said about him, to all that stuff, Jesus thought that everything that he had done was enough. It was enough. He didn't need praise and glory. He wanted to make sure the Father had praise and glory. This is the same thing we saw in John the Baptist. I must decrease while what? He must increase, right? Jesus said what? I have to decrease in my ministry. Why? So you can see the glory of the Father in his ministry. He must be the increase. God the Father, which by the way, just a little side note, nobody hardly called God the Father. Go back and look in any prayer through the Old Testament. The first person to ever give us the idea of God the Father is Jesus Christ. The irony is he gives it to us in this prayer. He says, Father. He starts out with him. Every time he called him Father, Abba. 
And Abba is not like a father, like, oh, this big overhanging spirit. No, it's this, it's this dad that you can lay up against. It's a very intimate name, right? This is what they were, this is the, the craziness of the gospel. God was trying to get away from you looking like when you pray, you're not saying, oh, God, like this generic God or this unnamed God, Jehovah God, my provider. All those things are good things. Listen, Je- he is Jehovah Jireh. He is your provider. But make no mistake, he is God first, your father. And not like a father because he has many children. No, your intimate father who you could lay up against, you could rest upon. You can just say, hey, dad, can we just talk for a second? You don't have to have this, Lord, I just pray that we, no. Is that how you talk to your dad? Because I'm going to tell you, that's what he wants. He so wants you to just be you with him. Jesus was, Jesus tried to model that. That's why he said, when, when Jesus prayed, he said, Father. That's how he prayed, like right off the bat. Like when they, like all the stuff they asked Jesus, how do you pray? They didn't ask him how you heal, how do you, how do you pray? Father, I start out with that. I start out with recognizing first and first alone that God is my Abba. He is my dad. He's, he's my dad. He loves me. I came from him. He's my, he's my blood, blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh, man. I'm created in his image. When you look at, to look at me is to look at the Father. I look just like my dad. That's, I, I was thinking about it the other day, like the, the surrealness of that, right? That whole statement. I look just like my dad. I'm just, I'm the image of the father. I'm just like my dad. You know, my dad in the 1980s, he also had a beard. If I was to pull out a picture, it'd be weird how much we look alike. You know what else he had? Big red GMC. Funny how things come back around. It's like I find myself turning around all these years later, and I turn around, I'm looking just like my dad with the GMC red pickup, beard, out deer hunting, taking the kids. Like, I became my dad. And don't lie, isn't that the goal of Christianity? Somehow you grow up, right? And we somehow become our dad, our parent, the one who's been taking care of us all this time, that we somehow bear his image to the world. That's the goal, guys. That's the goal. That's the irony of the whole thing. Jesus was saying, man, that's enough for me. Now, is it enough for you as the child of God? Is it enough for the church? It better be because this is where the paradox we've been given. We've been tasked with a serious mission. Our orders are clear. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teach, them new, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're supposed to tell everyone, listen, but while honoring the many things that he said and being like him in every fashion. And that's not easy. Matter of fact, it's paradoxical. How can we be about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and yet honor so many things that seem to hinder the mission? Like not telling anybody things that you give or not telling anybody that you've been praying or not telling anybody when you're fasting. Those are wonderful things. But how am I supposed to do stuff, let people know that I'm the person that they can come to or that they can trust me with godly things if I can never show them or talk about it, God? You are hindering the mission in that irony. I think that's what we say to God. How do we keep from sounding like the Pharisees? They were known for their religion. People knew that they were the, in quotations, the holy ones of Israel. Yet it's these type of people Jesus worked against. You know the guys that held a prayer meeting outside and everybody in town knew that they were doing it? Jesus is like, don't be like those dudes. You know, they, and then he like used them as examples when he talked about fasting. Don't be like them when they fast. 
how they proclaim and they wail outside and let everybody know that they're starving. Don't be like that, right? And even when you talked about giving, don't be like them when they give. They make everybody know that they gave something to somebody. And then he talks about that really simple. It's like, you know, this is their reward, guys. The praise of men is their reward. Which one do you want, the praise of men or the praise of God? There's an eternity for those. Those works are good works. But where you get your reward, I think, is going to be the difference. If your eyes are on eternity, then you want, your, you want to not say anything. If your eyes are right now and down on earthly things, then, of course, tell anybody. And so that's the paradox for us. How do, I, how, do, how do I do the ministry when it seems that there's so many things set up against us? Like Matthew 6, for instance, right? Works against it. And I think most, most of it's, it's pretty much ignored. And I think there's a great argument there for those who say, well, how else are they going to know? If we don't tell them this is where they can hear the gospel. By the way, you know why the first generation church didn't struggle with this? Because they went to your house. They were your friends. You heard the gospel at work. I mean, that's just the truth. You, you didn't have to go to church to hear the gospel because they brought the church to you. The church went out. The go part of the mission was taken seriously. Matter of fact, so serious that in Acts 1-8, Jesus said, I will give you the Holy Spirit so you can go. You can go. You know, some, some will say, well, man, I haven't really felt the Holy Spirit or experienced the Holy Spirit. Well, then how many people are you telling about Jesus every week? First of all, start there. Start telling people about Jesus and watch if the Holy Spirit doesn't follow you. Watch if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit as you start to tell and witness to people about Jesus. I'm telling you. How many cool stories the missionaries got? How many cool stories the evangelists got out there? How else will they know unless we hear? But my answer is still the same. Same as Jesus. Trust that the Lord sees you. Don't the scripture say, humble yourself and you shall be exalted? All right? If I trust that only the Lord sees me, then how will everyone else see the Father? First of all, that's the Lord's issue, isn't it? I mean, if he's telling me to do these things, how they see him, isn't that his responsibility? Secondly, when you're removed from the picture, all that's left is God. <laughs> that's what happens. All that's left is God. That's all they see. Thirdly, we've got to start thinking relationally in ministry. Everything needs to be done on a face-to-face -face in the gospel. There is no such thing as like this idea of I'm going to, the only time we see a mass sermon and massive people get saved is Acts 2. Everything else is in a home, in somebody's personal space, an intimate space. The only time we ever see a big sermon where thousands of people get saved is Acts 2. Now, I, when it comes to discipleship and the way we do things, I'm not sure it's ever going to change, but uh, because I think with this idea we want discipleship on a mass scale just is what it is, but I don't, it wasn't meant for the masses like that. It was meant to be personal and up close. It's meant to be messy, which is also a reason I think we struggle there. I think we try to get away from the messy stuff, and so we figure out a way where it's less messy. And the less messy way is when we're less intimate. That's the only way for it to be less messy. So we stick a teacher in front of you. We call it Sunday school. We call it cell group. We call it home group. We call it whatever you want to call it. And it becomes a small church inside of home rather than being each one of us, each one of us having a part of the body of Christ, working and functioning with our gifts. It's all paradox. We're to search these things out, work them out. I think it's like kneading dough. I don't think it's easy. I think you're going to have to get your hands dirty. I think your hands are going to come back full of flour, right? All white, like, you, like I can tell what you've been doing. 
Yeah, it's messy, man. I mean, I have, like I was telling somebody, I have a couple of meetings this week that I don't want to have. But the gospel's messy, man. Relationships are messy. What, what I do want is relationships. Why? Because I can witness and tell people about Jesus. It's messy. As we walk through ministry, as we walk through life, we are to be making his name known while also decreasing ourselves so that God is completely seen in all his glory. To become the ministry of Christ is become the ambassador of reconciliation. We become a people that not only see our lives change, but we bring change to all we meet. And in this way, we fulfill what the scriptures say. One of my favorites, Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is, is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she puts only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. My objective which it should be the same as yours, that eventually we will permeate every part of this city with the glory and the message of the Father. This is the will of God. I don't have to guess that part. It is the will of God that the message of Jesus Christ permeate this entire city, that there not be a single person here that has not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, you know as well as I do, maybe 15% of this city and the surrounding areas right now are actually in church. Maybe 15%, maybe 20 if we were so hopeful. So where are the rest? And whose job is it? It's ours. You know what I think? I think we're on to something. I do. I, I, I think God's trying to show us things that, to me, they're not revolutionary. They're biblical. I think this idea of return is leading us to a place where God is going to get all the glory. We are going to be made low, and God is going to do some crazy stuff. I mean, I already think, I already think there's some crazy stuff already happening to me. You know, it's, it, when, when Lakeshore calls us for the back-to-school blast, you know what they think about us? I don't know if you all even realize this. When they call us, like the first time they called us, like, okay, would you, would you handle the praying? Would you handle all the praying side of that? We need a spiritual side to this thing. And we just can't figure that out. And we know you. And we know the type of person you are. And we, and we, we need this side. And we know that, man, that's y'all. Yeah, yeah, that's what we'll do. I'm like, all the time, I'm like, who are we? We're nobody. And the more I, I'm trying to say that to my own heart, like, you're a nobody, Jim. It's about the Father. Be nobody. Be unseen. Be unheard. Let the Father be seen in everything. And then, and then you know what I'm trusting God with? Everything else. And you know what's funny? But that's what people are starting to look at us as. We're the spiritual side of things, guys. We're the spirit. The, the other churches are looking at us like, man, the, you're the spiritual side of everything. You're the saturation and the spirit side. You know, I always used to tell people about books. You know, if you want a book about leadership and management, you go to the young guys. If you wanted to talk about anything about God and the spirit and the Holy Spirit and the deep things of God, you go find you a guy that's like passed away. Right? And you read their books. Because they didn't have all the conferences and all the junk yet. They just had their Bible and Jesus, and they just expounded on that. Right? We're like that. I think that's awesome because we're all, it's not like we're a bunch of old people in here. We're the spiritual side. We're the side that's longing after God. We're the side that's longing for revival. We're the side that wants God to get the glory more than we get the glory. We're trying to do the things the Bible says, even if it costs us people, even if it costs us empty chairs, even if it costs us a church. We're trying to do things the way the Bible is saying to do things. And we're just going to, it's like, remember what we used to say a lot, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to fail. All right. Well, compared to church standards, we are. 
Because church standards, they judge themselves by how many seats they're sitting. But I'm going to tell you right now, we will never judge this church by how many seats we have in here, but more by how many we send. How many go out and do the mission? How many will love people like Jesus loves? Amen? Amen. I know it's not exciting, super exciting stuff. I didn't get up and yell too loud. I'm not trying to beat anybody with a hammer. If anything, man, I hope that I was transparent before you so that you can see the struggle. And if I can struggle, I know you got to struggle at times too with things. But you know what I want more than anything else? Let's bring the worship in. What I want more than anything else is for you to have a heart that longs after God as well, that hungers and thirsts after God as well, that seeks revival so that God would even have moments in your life where you start to become challenged. about. Listen, if you get to the place where God quit challenging you, I question whether you're still seeking after God. I don't think I'm ever going to reach a place where God quits calling something out of my life. I used to say it like this uh, to the kids, like, like, uh, when, so there was a time where I did drugs and alcohol, and eventually God walked with me and said, all right, we've got to be done with this. I've got to start giving you some holy guilt here. Okay. And so I walked away from that, and that was hard for a while, right? And then the next thing comes, God goes, okay, we're going we're gonna to take this side of you out right now. Okay. God, if that's what needs to, right? And it doesn't, it's not like God actually says it. It's like this. It's like all of a sudden the thing that I was doing in my own life all of a sudden becomes, I think I'm sinning. Like, I think that's sin to me now right? The irony is, so what, what I've confessed today is the things that I've done in the last five or six years have now all of a sudden become, God, I see where I was making a mistake. I see where I was being fed, my, I fed myself affirmation, and I fed myself these things, but really, man, I was stealing glory from you, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, God. You did such a, an amazing work despite me, kind of like Samson. I felt like Samson at times, you know? Like, you gave me this wonderful gift, and what do I do with it? I use it to beat everybody up and show how awesome I am. And in the end, when I'm blind and I'm ragged, I end up just doing what? And wanting what? God, one more time, will you use me to perform your will so that I may accomplish all that you have for me in my life? For the very thing, from the very beginning, when you laid your hands on me, God, and those older women came around me and began to pray, Lord, will you honor the very thing that you called me for in the first place, God? Will you forgive me for the way I acted, Father, and help me move forward? And every time, you know what you know the great thing about God? Absolutely, son. It's, it's the Father moment. It's the Abba moment, like with Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely, I will. Stand to your feet this morning.